0: Now, I started my first Gresham lecture by introducing the idea of medicine as performance. I started by saying that as a student, I saw medicine as a science. As a surgeon, I saw it in terms of skill. And as a GP, I saw it as a performance. And then as a patient, I knew it was all three of those. But what I experienced most was the performance. And so it's the performance I'm going to look at in the next hour or so. Last time, I explored the clinical consultation as a close-up live performance with a very small audience, drawing on my own experience as a family doctor, as a GP. And in this lecture, I'm going to explore a different world. I'm going to explore the world of operative surgery. And, of course, um, operations are only a a small part of, of what surgeons do. A lot of their work is seeing patients beforehand and looking after them on the ward afterwards, dealing with them in the intensive care unit, all sorts of things. But the bit I'm going to concentrate on is the world of the operating theatre. Now, I think in in representations of the operating theatre in film and television, you can often get the idea that the most important person there is the operating surgeon. But, of course, that's not really the case. Now, I spent my first career as a general surgeon and I can tell you from experience and I learned very quickly that surgery is not all about the surgeon it's about the team it's about the patient it's about a much broader way of thinking. So if we think about the operating theatre here we've got um, we've got a, a, a lead surgeon over there in the middle and opposite her is a Surgical is is, is her first assistant. Over there on the left of the picture, as we look at it, we've got a scrub nurse, a theatre sister, looking after instruments. Over there on the right is the anaesthetist looking after the patient, making sure they're safely asleep, um, and various other members of the surgical team. And I guess from a surgeon's point of view, I thought about the operating theatre in terms of of applied science, of of what happened when all that anatomy and physiology and stuff that I'd learnt sort of came into play. But I think there's something very interesting about a complex environment like that because you can look at it in several ways. So this well-known image can be either a duck looking to the left or you can see it as a rabbit looking to the right. And you can flip between them. What you can't do is have a sort of amalgam that's a bit of both. And you can rapidly switch from one to the other. But when you're seeing it as a duck, you're not seeing it really as a rabbit. When you're seeing it as a rabbit, you're not seeing it as a duck. And so when we look at the operating theatre, we might see it as the site of the application of scientific knowledge. Or we might see it as a site of performance, where, where individually, though differently skilled people, come together as a group to do something where they rely on one another. And once it's started, it needs to go on to its conclusion. So when we join this team of surgeons, just for a few minutes, just a few seconds really, starting an operation, I'd like you to look at what's happening when they're working together. The operation is for somebody who's been injured, the team is opening the patient up, they don't yet know what they're going to find, and we join them just at that early stage.
1: There's a fair bit of blood in here actually, so let's pack the four quadrants. Okay, oh dear, quite a lot of blood swelling up here. Don't worry, that's the retractor. So we'll get that back inside so you can see what we're doing. We'll reattach a suction right underneath there. Suction there. Okay, can I have suction on, please? Okay, okay. All right, and let's pack again. So
0: your point of focus might be what's wrong with this patient, all that blood coming out, what's wrong, what's been damaged, what to do about it, or. It might be looking, for instance, at communication. And that becomes particularly important when things go, don't go according to plan. So let's join another operation just for a moment. Thank you very
1: much. Keep the pressure there, yeah? Yes, OK, but I'm trying to find what's bleeding. I need some work construction. Who's helping us? We need some help in here. Emily, can you go and get someone else to no, help I can't,
0: help can't us? ventilate.
1: OK, I'm sorry about that, but I can't ventilate this then. OK, so So
0: we've got different problems going on in different parts of the operating theatre. The anaesthetist is having a problem with keeping the patient ventilated with oxygen. The surgeon is having a problem with dealing with bleeding. So it's all about communication. And so I want to pick up that idea of performance by looking, first of all, at different kinds of surgery. When I did my surgical training, this was in the 1980s in Soweto and the outskirts of Johannesburg, um, doing trauma surgery. And at that time, pretty much all big operations were what's called open surgery. They were done under general anaesthetic. You would open the patient up and you would see directly what was inside, what was injured. And, of course, that kind of surgery goes on today. Um, Here we are. We've got an operating theatre where the team is doing something exactly like that. Um, In the foreground, we can see set of instruments the kind of instruments you would use for that sort of surgery instruments rather like this I don't know if you can see that it's like a a, a long curved pair of scissors only it's a pair of forceps for uh, clipping arteries and stopping them from bleeding But of course, nowadays, many operations aren't like that at all. They're much more like this. This is keyhole surgery. So here we're seeing in the foreground a set of very different kinds of instruments, instruments like this, long, thin, rigid instruments that go in through a tiny port or hole in the patient's abdominal cavity in this this case and allow the surgical team to see what's going on. Now you can see that the the light is peculiar because the operating theatre is designed so that people don't see the patient's organs directly but they see them projected on a screen over here on the left. And the surgical team is having to manipulate things through these long, thin, rigid instruments which are used at a distance. There are other kinds of surgery too, so this is a minimal access surgery where here a clinician has made a tiny hole in an artery in one part of the body, in this case the patient's groin, and is feeding a flexible wire up to some other part of the body completely. It might be the heart, it might be the brain, it might be somewhere else, watching on a screen to see what's happening. And if you look at this picture here, up there at the top right, you can just see a flexible Um, the shape of a flexible wire tracing the path of an artery. We can't see the artery itself because this is an X-ray picture, but we can see the line of that radio-opaque wire. And so something is being done remotely from where that wire was put in. So many different kinds of surgical practice, many different kinds of performance, many different kinds of using instruments of different kinds and, 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 and team members. So I want to spend a couple of minutes thinking about where those team members are looking, what they're focusing on, what they're concentrating on, where is their centre of attention. So here's a schematic diagram of the operating theatre. We're looking down from above as if we were sitting on the top of an operating lamp in the middle of the theatre. Up at the, uh, on, on the left there is the, um, is the operating surgeon. Simplified the picture, just three people. Normally they would be assistants, but here... That's the surgeon on the left. At the top, next to the patient's head, is the anaesthetist. And on the right of the picture, looking both at the surgeon and the operative site, but also at a table full of instruments, is the scrub nurse, the, uh, the theatre nurse, whose job it is to, uh, to keep track of the various pieces of equipment that are being used. And these, these yellow lines represent different beams of attention. So if we look, first of all, at the surgeon, the surgeon's beam of attention is really what he or she is operating on. It might look something like this. We've already seen an example of that. The surgeon is looking intently, in this case, an open operation at the organs. And and it's very important that the surgeon is able to keep his or her eye on what they're looking at and not have to take their gaze away and look at somebody else and ask for something. And that's why the system allows... Instruments to be handed to and fro, suspending the normal sort of social conventions of how you ask for things. The anaesthetist up there has a very different area of focus because the anaesthetist is not looking directly at the wound at all much of the time. But they're looking instead at the patient, at the patient's head here, making sure that the tubes are going into the patient's windpipe to make sure that oxygen anaesthetic gases are going into the patient as they should do. And also keeping an eye on the monitoring equipment that gives a sense of how the various um, aspects of physiology, the heart rate, the amount of oxygen, all those things are, are are being kept in line and then the 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 third member of the team the theater nurse has a different view again because they're seeing the instruments they're seeing the the objects and the equipment that the surgeons are needing but if you're looking from that point of view very often you don't see much of the operative site at all so these these are these are fragmentary pictures no no one person is 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 seeing the whole thing Everybody has a different beam of attention. And I think the key to successful surgery is integrating those different perspectives and making sure that all members of the team work effectively together. And I'm going to show you a brief um, glimpse of an operation done by an extremely experienced surgical team. I'm going to show you an open gallbladder operation or a glimpse of an open gallbladder operation. It's actually not a real one, it's a simulation. Just to give you your bearings, here's what the operation is about. That's the liver and the gallbladder is being peeled off it. I'll tell you, if you take that... Give me that to do that again. I'll tell you, if you take that... And now this is interesting. And in this case... In the centre is Professor Harold Ellis, who's a very well-known surgeon, and at the time we did this, he was in his 80s. He's um, working with Sister Mary Neeland, who, for many years, was the theatre sister. He worked closely with clinically, and we're bringing them together after many, many years of not operating to see how, to see what happens when we reconstitute a, t- a team from quite a long time ago. And what I'd like you to look at in the next few seconds is what happens between the surgeon. And the theatre sister. The arteries is running with it in man. The artery is separate. Well, in mankind, men and women, the artery runs separate from it. But here you can see. I just have a scissor. You can. Got... And although at first sight it might have seemed that Sister Neeland was thinking about other things, wasn't attending particularly on what was happening, it turns out that she has anticipated exactly what the surgeon is going to need and she's handed him the instrument he needs at the right moment. And, in fact, if you slow this down, you find the sequence of events goes something like this. He holds out his hand. She has got the instrument ready that she knows he's going to need. She puts it in his hand. He closes his fingers around it, pulls his hand back... And only then says scissors, please, sister. <laughs> so she has already; they have already done what needs to be done, and he only talks about it afterwards. So I think we're getting at an essence of teamwork, where people who know one another very well are able to work together in a wordless synchrony of movement that allows the whole operation to progress without needing a lot of words. And so there's something I think about about the, the choreography, the sort of ballet of of hands and bodies of people working closely together uh, in an operating theatre to make this wordless communication happen. So that's one way of looking at the operating theatre as performance between, almost between um, actors or, or, or ballet dancers. And, and that way of looking at, at surgery seems to me to make to make sense in terms of how we might think of performance of other kinds. So if we think about the operating theatre as a site of performance we've got a place where it happens we've got a we've got a script we've got an idea of what is going to happen to whom and why we've got a cast we've got the patient of course at the centre we've got the surgical team members that I've just described there's a set with props and lighting and staging enormous amount of preparation goes into it studying technical skill practice rehearsal all kinds of experience from previous performances then there's the operation itself beginning a middle and an end and the outcome, the success or possibly the complications that might arise, how people deal with with either the success or the complications. And then, of course, the the need to be able to respond to the unexpected because although in many kinds of surgery, elective surgery, planned surgery, when perhaps you're taking out a bit of somebody's stomach for cancer or something, you have a pretty good idea, to begin with, of what you're going to find, although you can always be surprised. Um, In other kinds of surgery, such as the trauma surgery I mentioned earlier, the only thing that you really know for certain before you begin, is that there is stuff you cannot know until you start because you cannot predict very often where a knife wound would have gone, where a bullet would have gone. And so there is an inbuilt uncertainty that requires very high levels of improvisation. And I think improvisation often has a bad name because it implies lack of preparation or just doing things on the hoof. But I think improvisation is a a high art because improvisation, when it works well, is is how people who are individually very expert apply that expertise in the moment to respond to a a rapidly evolving situation and make sense of it. But there's another way of looking at the operating theatre, many other ways, but here's one of them. This is a different view of surgery. This is a a painting by Barbara Hepworth, which many of you will probably know, based on her experience watching many operations in the 1940s when one of her triplets had osteomyelitis, a bone infection, and Hepworth spent a lot of time watching surgery. And she's captured here, I think, an essence of surgery that is very different from what we saw earlier, where the focus was on how to deal with bleeding or how to hand instruments, because we're not really seeing bleeding or instruments. In fact, we're not really seeing very much in the way of detail at all. We're seeing... We're not seeing the patient, we're not seeing the anaesthetic machine, we're not seeing operating lights, we're not seeing instruments particularly. But what we are seeing, I think, is an essence of performance. We're seeing seeing focus and concentration and calmness and commitment and people who are all coming together to do something for a particular purpose, a shared purpose, which is to look after the patient in their care. So it's a different way of thinking about the operating theatre, a different way of thinking about performance. And so I'm going to stop talking now and I'm going to to invite you to think of what might come into view if we looked at the operating theatre from a, a different perspective altogether, from the perspective of other kinds of performance experts. And I'm going to introduce to you the idea of puppetry as an investigative lens through which we can look at the operating theatre and see things we might not have noticed before. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Rachel War, who uh, amongst many other things is the recently appointed puppeteer in residence at the Centre for Performance Science, which I mentioned earlier with the Royal College of Music and Imperial. Um, And I'm going to invite Rachel to come to the stage and first of all, just say a few words about who you are and what you do.
1: Thank you, Roger. Yes, of course. So, I work as a puppetry director and a dramaturg, which means I help with the structuring of performance, and a puppeteer. Um, And my background originally was in movement and dance and mask and mime, and then for a long time working with actors on new writing and developing sort of narrative and uh, kind of character and so forth. And then, some way in, I started working with puppeteers and puppets. And um, it was said to me, fairly quickly from other puppeteers, um, if you're going to direct puppets, you should train to be a puppeteer because you need to understand what the puppet can do and you need to understand what it is you're asking of the puppet and the puppeteer. So I trained to be a puppeteer. And then during that, they said, if you're going to puppeteer, you need to learn how to make puppets. (laughs) Because then you're understanding how joints work and how the different materials are moving or functioning and so forth. So I then did some some, classes and workshops and bits of training in, in making puppets. So, so I do those things a little bit, but primarily I'm a director of puppets. So that's it, really. So
0: that takes us to when Rachel and I first met, which was a number of years ago now. It was. Um, we met almost by chance, and... and, and from an initial conversation, it seemed that there were interesting points of connection between us. And then I invited Rachel to come and watch and take part in a simulation of surgery. Many of the videos I showed you there of those, those operations opening people up to see what was wrong were actually simulations, realistic simulations. And Rachel, I, I, I remember inviting you and some of your colleagues to, to have a look at the world of surgery.
1: Yes, it, it... <laughs> I didn't really quite know what to expect because I think everybody has an image of the operating theatre from drama and television and what have you. And I'm fortunate enough to not have experienced being in an operation myself Uh, as a patient. I have subsequently as an observer. Um, So I had an idea of what to expect, but not any real detail. But within minutes, within seconds, in fact, it seemed familiar, really familiar. I straight away felt as if I had come out of my rehearsal room with my puppeteers and walked into almost the same scenario. So obviously the purpose is very different, um, but if you look beyond that and you look at the the skills being used, it, it felt to me completely familiar. I could almost take the image of one and transpose it onto the image of the other. So specifically, the positions that the surgical team were standing in was almost identical to how my puppeteers were standing in a particular form of puppetry, which I'll talk about in a moment, and also the way they were using their hands, um, the the, the kind of slant of their body, the focus, the gaze being essentially down, even though there is a a kind of projected energy as well, Um, the way that they needed to communicate. um, Certainly with the focus being on the patient, or in our case, the puppet, um, It means that the communication is quite hampered and obviously in surgical terms there's masks and there are gloves and there are things that make it much harder to communicate. Um, That's quite common in puppetry too. We quite often have gloves and sometimes hoods so that the puppeteer can disappear and the puppet can be the thing that's in light. Not always though, but there were so many parallels with how they communicate the rhythm and the pace and the the, the team working seemed very familiar.
0: So, so that was you and your puppeteers coming into the world of surgery. The next thing that happened, though, was I invited Rachel and her puppeteers to come and give me an insight into the world of puppetry, which I knew pretty much nothing about at all, except for having been to a puppet show when I was a small child. And that, that, to me, that was a revelation. And, and so Rachel and her puppeteers came and, and demonstrated several kinds of puppetry. And, and so, Rachel, we're, we're going to start doing that now, aren't we, just for the yeah. people in the audience, to give a sense of some of the kinds of puppetry that are out there and how they might resonate with the world of the operating theatre.
1: Absolutely. So I I think perhaps we'll start with um, a form of puppetry that that is generally referred to as banraku, which comes from Japan, and it it developed in the early 1700s, 17th century, sorry. And um, it's a form that has really influenced Western puppetry in the last, well, several decades, I suppose, Um, and it, to me, it's the strongest connection to open surgery. Uh, so there is one puppet and there are three puppeteers. And they each have a different beam of focus, much like the surgical team you were talking about. But they have to work in a way that is um, connected and fluid and interdependent. Um, and there is a sort of um, role that each person takes, which is different from the others. Um, and they have a limited view of what the puppet is doing. But they have to work seamlessly and together together to give the the puppet fluid, accurate movement. So maybe we'll do some. Can I invite onto the stage my wonderful puppeteers who've joined me today? We have Sue Daker, Lizzie Wirt, and Gilbert Taylor. And we're going to do a little bit of uh, Bunraku-style puppetry from a Western tradition. I'm just going to let them set up. And so maybe the things to observe is perhaps with the images you saw of the surgical teams, perhaps think about how that might be similar to this. So the, the gaze of them... Of, their, of the puppeteers uh, or their sort of focus, um, how they are close together um, in slightly awkward positions, how they can't see anything more than their immediate area. Um, I think that's enough to go on. So, thank you. Oh! <laughs> So, just before you take him away, can I just <laughs> get you in your starting positions with him? Because I just want to explain a little bit about what's happening with this team. Is that all right, Yes, Roger? indeed, yes. So, first off, I want to say that although these puppeteers know each other, this is the first instance where they've worked together. I mean, we had a, you know an hour or something, but they're not used to working together as a, as a team particularly. Um, and that's very common in the work that we do.
0: And it's common in the work that we do too, where very often these days, it's very different from the, the clip I showed you where Sister Neeland had worked with Professor Ellis for many, many years. Very often people will come together to do a big operation and they've never met until that day. They are all individually expert, but they haven't worked in that configuration before.
1: Fantastic. So, So there is a sort of... I might just say that in traditional benaraku in Japan, a team will stay together for their whole working lives. So three people will work together for 30, 40, whatever, more years... That doesn't happen here in the West. We don't have that sort of luxury or that sort of intent. So people will come together for just a production, so they're together for that rehearsal time. So one of the things that helps that is that there is a bit of a structure to this team. So their focus is all on the puppet. They have a different perspective on the puppet, but the puppet allows them... Sorry to keep you standing for such a long time, puppeteers. It's very typical as so well to get strains. The puppet... Um, is the thing that's unifying it. So the breath and the movement of the puppet is allowing each of them to have a sense of what the other member of the team is doing. I think perhaps in the same way as the breath of the patient is guiding the team as to what's required. Yeah, I think
0: in a sense it's a sort of external focus, isn't there? Mm. That, that with a successful team, they're all focusing on something that is not any of them. Yes. And that's what I noticed when I first saw you and your puppeteers show a different puppet, but the same kind of thing, was that they started off by making the puppet breathe. And it was almost imperceptible to begin with, but it completely caught my attention mm. because they were obviously focusing not on themselves or one another, but on the puppet. Yeah. And I think there's something very similar that happens in a, in a successful surgical team mm. where that, there is that external point of focus, which is the patient, of
1: course. Mm. Mm. And uh, Yes, absolutely. So here we have three, thank you, three puppeteers. So Gilbert is operating the, the head and an arm. And in puppetry, we tend to find, and in movement too, um, that because thought is coming from the head, that's where intention is coming from. So often the decision-making for the puppet itself is sort of coming from the head. It sees something, it starts to respond to it. So the person operating the head is taking a a lead of sorts and making decisions, Um, much like a a lead surgeon, a head surgeon, as it were. What's the correct term? Lead surgeon. Lead surgeon. Fantastic. And then we have Sue, who is providing support with the the arm. And sometimes in some Bunraku, it it is also on the back. It depends quite on the design of the puppet, certainly in the West. And so the hand is doing things separately to the other hand, but it has to do things in a way that's connected. Although your hands aren't moving completely symmetrically, they are connected. So for me, that's very like what I observed with that simulation that you first showed me with the assisting surgeon, Um, providing some tension and providing some joined-up movement. And then Lizzie, who's working the feet, obviously has to facilitate movement and stability on the ground. And I it seemed to me that that was very much like a scrub nurse who was having to facilitate the instruments back and flow to allow the movement for the operation to happen and to sort of keep, has perhaps the least view of the puppet because she's looking at the feet, but is absolutely instrumental in moving at the right time. Because if the puppet... Makes the decision to move, and the feet aren't ready. It looks very unnatural and very strange, and it doesn't work. You can see very quickly that it doesn't work. So there's a sort of hierarchy-ish within the tips—not a word I particularly like to use—but a sort of hierarchy that each person has a distinct role.
0: And they're all essential to one and another. All
1: essential, and, it, and it, sh- it shifts. So there might be times where actually that has to be shared between <laughs> other members. So if <laughs> if the puppet was to do something where maybe the feet takes a lead, let's say it, it, it s- slips or something, or suddenly realise... Then the feet might be taking a lead rather than the head and the thought process.
0: And so there's something about leadership being a, a sort of flexible thing.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's
0: not a rigid thing. It, it, it can alter according to that. I suppose it goes back to what I was saying earlier about improvisation and having to respond to the unexpected.
1: Absolutely. I'm going to stand my puppeteers down, if that's all right. I think that's a good idea. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely, that flexible hierarchy where where actually each person is given their space to do the bit they need to do to facilitate the action as a whole
0: i think you made a very interesting point about what it is that the puppeteers can see and can't see because of course they never see what the audience sees uh and and from what you're saying they only see a a a partial a part of the picture anyway the person doing the feet does not see what the person doing the head sees
1: absolutely absolutely it's very important for us that the focus is on the puppet there might be a very few occasions where the, the person who's operating the head might need to look to see that the puppet is reaching out and getting the thing or whatever. But the, the focus is on the puppet, and that's a key part of giving the puppet life. Um, you know, that, that, that becomes a very important part. And I think much the same in, in an operation, from what I've observed, that the, the patient is, in a sense, um, unifying everybody and guiding what the next they the I, thing that you're responding to, the person that you're responding but to. But
0: I think in surgery there is also a, a danger, I don't know if you get this in puppetry, particularly for people who are inexperienced. If things go outside the unexpected, people tend to over-focus on their part of the picture and lose their awareness of what's happening. So I don't know if absolutely.
1: people
0: just focus on what's happening with the feet and they, they, they don't abs- notice abs- what's absolutely. going on elsewhere. Which, which
1: is, is a very um, intuitive thing to do, to, to draw down onto what you need to be... Um, thinking about, but actually it's it's the opposite of what you need to do. It's the awareness of the wider picture with your team um, that ela- enables you to be um, in sync and in flow. And,
0: and you need to be able to stand back sometimes, don't you, and, and just make sure that you're, you're not the, missing things in the whole picture. That's right.
1: That's right. The, the rhythm of it is very important, and the breath for us. We talk about breath a lot um, because every movement and every impetus has a breath connected to it and that allows us to Feed off on read each other physically and and um, pace-wise, um, which is key. I think.
0: I mean, uh, the the other thing that struck me about the Bunraku is the is the way that that the three people are reading one another's bodies without necessarily being directly consciously aware of it, but they, they are absolutely responding not only to the puppet, but to one another. Absolutely. And coordinating those movements, even though they're not looking at one another. And there yeah. seem to be very clear parallels with what happens in the, 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 the team of people around a patient's, patient's uh, office Absolutely.
1: It, it seems so familiar to me, that mm. very first opportunity mm. that, that you invited me in. So that was one of the things mm. that
0: I think struck us both, was this, the way that people work together in a team. But, but there are other things as well. And, and one of them was about the, the object and the things that people do with their hands. Focusing now on, on the surgeons, particularly less so on the anaesthetists, perhaps, but on the surgeons and the and the, the, the theatre nursing team, how these objects are part of the performance. Yeah. Um, and in in those introductory slides, I showed various kinds of instruments, and, and I guess one of them that we that we noticed earlier on was 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 these was these keyhole surgery instruments. These 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 sort of long, thin, rigid things. And and to my surprise, you said, ah, that reminds me of rod puppets. And I haven't really thought about rod puppets. I didn't know about them. Say a bit about them.
1: so so there are... You can have rod puppets that have very short rods, but you can have rod puppets that have very long rods. And so these made me think of long rod puppets. And the connection is really that you have a rod, you've got a trigger on one end that's allowing you to make something open or close or twist. In this case with the laparoscopic, it's generally these examples are open and close. And that's often the case with the puppet. It might be that it's um, making a head move or an arm or whatever. Um, But the way that these instruments change your physical range, so you're relying much more on twists of hands, you've got a a smaller area of movement, um, and you have much less... Physical connection to what you're so the haptic awareness. It's different, isn't it? Changes. I mean, I'm not a
0: laparoscopic surgeon myself, but 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 um, but clearly when you're doing something at a distance with an instrument like this, where you're controlling what happens at the other end, but it's a long way away through a port where you can't directly see the business end, you can just see it on a screen while you're manipulating yeah. the, the handles or something. It's a very different tactile experience, isn't it, from using an instrument like this where you're where where you're directly putting it onto a part of the body and clipping it and doing things, and and I thought that was an interesting parallel too. Can, mm. can you have you got a run part of it? we could perhaps?
1: We, we do. I'll just say yes. a couple of things. But do you want to? Um, and I'll just talk for a moment. So yes, I, if you get very. Certainly with a bunraku star puppy, you get very used to being able to feel every sort of every um, move or step or joint or whatever. And with the long rod, you're so much more removed and you, you have to sense things quite differently. It's less intuitive for me anyway. I think generally that's a fair thing to say. And um, the similarities particularly for me are when um, long rod are being used for television or film. So you, instead of looking at the puppet as you do in live performance, you'll be potentially looking at the monitor... To see what it is that the camera is capturing, to make sure that you're within the frame and so forth. And so your focus changes, and, and that seemed very apparent to me. So Roger even let me have a go at, dare I said, not on a person, on um, some keyhole surgery on a on a, you know, a, sort of a simulation situation. And um, <laughs> everything I knew about puppetry and rods I completely forgot. And I was standing in a very ridiculous position and doing really badly. But, but actually, once I relaxed and thought, this is familiar, I know what this is, it suddenly all became much more familiar. But, um, so with, with these puppets, you can see just very simply, we've got slightly longer in some cases rods, we've got a trigger. If somebody could just move their trigger so you can see what kind of movement that's giving for the puppets. So it's, it's quite sensitive, but you're not feeling it in your hands in the same way. Um, but you're
0: still able to exert very precise control.
1: Absolutely, but with a bit of practice. <laughs> I mean, the bunraku takes great practice too, of course, but it's not instantaneous. Yeah. Um, and it seems very similar to me. And, and often, as I think we've got a couple of puppets happening here, the puppets are interacting, so your rods are getting quite close and your bodies are, again, quite close, in a similar way with the bunraku that your team are quite close together. It, it can put your bodies into quite stressed positions in order to facilitate what needs to happen, in this case, with the puppets.
0: And so it's all happening at one remove, in a way. You're, you're yeah. much further away from what, from where the action is than you yeah. were with the Bunraku when you're directly manipulating the head or the arms or the feet or something. Absolutely. Here you're doing it at a distance. Yeah. And that's very like forms of surgery, I think, too. Mm. And it requires a different way of thinking and a different set of skills and a different way, different ways of getting your fingers to... To, to see and to hear, I think.
1: Uh, absolutely, and I think. Thank you. I'm going to let them relax. And otherwise, we'll just get entranced by what the puppets are <laughs> doing. Um, <laughs> absolutely, I think um, it, it. You ha- it, because to even simple things like to affect a small amount of movement you potentially have a bigger circle to do that if you're if you if it's a if it's a pivot point or if it's twisting you're putting more strain in part of your body that you it it, it changes how you so there's quite a sort of
0: mechanical awareness of how these things work with the fulcrum and all those things isn't it absolutely And,
1: and trying to sense as much as you can through that rod so if if you're um if it's if it's sort of if there's tension or there's um, I mean, it's quite common that puppets are required to pick things up, which is actually very difficult. And trying to sense whether that grasp has happened or whether that tilt has happened is, is much harder to read.
0: So, so there's Bunraku puppetry, which we started off with, then there's rod puppetry. But the other one I hadn't realised about at all is the kind of puppetry that uses strings, and uh, strings and threads. And as a surgeon, of course, I'm very used to using threads, and, and in the early days, particularly, very used to threads getting tangled up and getting snarled up round instruments and things and the difficulties and challenges mm-hmm. of using long, thin threads effectively in a team to either to be sewing things myself or to be what's called following, to be helping a, another surgeon, again, keeping things out mm-hmm. of the way and not mm-hmm. getting them tangled up. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that there were parallels there, didn't it, as well? So yeah. say a little bit about marionettes.
1: OK, so, so actually, I think, just to backtrack a tiny bit, we, we if you remember, we did a series of events looking at managing threads. And it was fascinating, actually, because there was so much to discuss in terms of sensing tension or taut threads or slack and loose or taking care of your threads to not have them twisted, taking care of, um, of them be- in terms of uh, not snagging on whatever they're pulling on, I- ensuring that you have the right kind of knot there was a really lovely moment, actually, where we, we had, a, I think it was a, a paediatric surgeon trying to teach one of the knots that she uses that have to be done inside a tiny body of a baby, but so working at depth without any real ease of movement, and then we started talking about tying a knot inside the body of a puppet And it Mm -hmm. turned out it was the same knot. (laughs) So we had this exchange of trying to teach a one-handed tying of a knot and being quite confused for a while and then discovering that actually it was the same knot, we just didn't have a common term for it. Um, So, yeah, with with string puppets, obviously you've got... ..you've got multiple strings moving the puppet. It's really common for them to get tangled and twisted. And and the way string puppets work is that you are using gravity as a counterforce to what you're uh, puppeteering. Um, and we have an example of a string pup here. This is a short-string marionette, but marionettes also come in long string. They can be sort of... Um, very bad with my measurements. Um, taller than the ceiling of this room, so that the, the puppeteers will be up on a bridge and the strings will be all the way down to the floor, so the puppeteers aren't seen. And obviously, the longer the string, the different sense of controlling the puppet. The, one of the challenges is keeping it still because the, the gravity and the strings are naturally making things move. So stillness, but also being able to control how much swing you have. Or so there's, some, there's something
0: about becoming expert in the materiality of threads, of Absolutely. one sort or another. Yeah, that's Short a brilliant longs, way of
1: putting it. Absolutely. Long
0: ones. Should we have a look at the puppet? Uh,
1: of course. So I'm going to invite my puppeteers up again, um, and I'm going to move out the way slightly. Um, so this particular puppet is... Um, just a neutral puppet, not from a particular performance or anything, Um, and the weight of the puppet is important to, to aid that gravity.
0: Once, Then kiss me twice, kiss me once again It's been a long, long time <coughs> Haven't felt like this, my dear, since can't remember when It's been a long So, Rachel, this isn't just about strings at all, is it? This is about complex movement of, of people around Absolutely. one another as well as manipulating the
1: Absolutely. And, and, and knowing how to put the right effort and momentum and movement into the string to get the effect you need, which I think is really interesting with some of the surgical situations with suture, where, you've, as you say, you've got several people uh, having to manipulate, as I might call it, a string in order to continue... The operation certainly uh, it was really interesting talking to somebody who who stitches who said you know you never want to have a stitch that's longer than your arm but of course in surgery you don't want extra knots so you might have thread that goes on much longer than that so the collaborative challenge of that and also being able to feel through the string when you're pulling too tight or you're too loose or you you know sense yes, I, th- that. I
0: thought that, that that sensitivity that your marionette property has talked about in in terms of tension Mm. that you talk about in terms of tension and recognising tension and when there's too, when it, when too much and when there's too little and how you recognise it very often at a, at a distance. Yeah. Again, we were talking about doing things at a distance with rigid rods, but also doing things at a distance with threads and recognising yeah. not only the thread, but what the thread's attached to and, and making all these, these sort of observations at one remove. Absolutely. It seemed to me fascinating that Absolutely. there were these parallels outside surgery.
1: It's, it's, it's really hard to to describe them often because you you've you learn to feel them and although you might describe aspects of it how to achieve something or whether something's working well you don't often put into words the actual thing you're physically doing or actually how it feels.
0: Well I think that's one of the things that's that's common to us both is that a lot of what is most important is most difficult to put into words. And you can experience it, you know what it feels like once you know what it feels like, Mm. but you can't really explain it to somebody who doesn't know what it feels like. Absolutely. And in a way, that's one of the, to me, has been one of the interesting things about about our collaboration has been to find different ways of expressing feelings that we both Mm. understand, Mm. but but to find a sort of, I suppose, a sort of metaphorical translation between one Mm way of perceiving the world and another way of perceiving the world um
1: it's 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 just sorry to interrupt you Roger it it was really interesting to me when you first talked about beams of attention because there's something in drama that's very similar in in which we generally call circles of attention and and it's about keeping your focus and not being distracted by something at the back of the room if somebody's coughing but also being able to widen it out so you can reach the back of the room when you want to and being in control of that. And it, it, it was so surprising to me when you first used the term because I thought, well, that's, that's a term that we use. And, and to have it recognised allows you then to train in it and to become good in it. Um,
0: and I think that brings us on to, to something we've been discussing for a while now, which is, which is what we might be able to learn from one another's practices. Because until we met, I had absolutely, as I said, I had absolutely no knowledge or understanding of, of, of puppetry at all, let alone what goes on under the bonnet with, with, with puppets. And and when we started working together, I discovered things about the way, for instance, that you prepare and practice that, that were a bit of an eye-opener for me. And one of them was about how you prepare to do things with your hands. Do you want mm. to say a little bit about that? Yes, of
1: course. Um, <laughs> I was shocked. I was shocked. So I think you'd invited me to observe a surgeon scrubbing up in preparation for the operation. And again, it was simulation. i just point that out. Um, and he was going into great detail explaining why things are done the way they are, not to get germs on anything and and how to be gowned in a way that you're not contaminating anything and so forth. And it was fascinating. But (laughs) in my head, I was thinking, well, that's all wonderful, but at what point do you get your hands ready to do the physical action? Because in puppetry... I don't know many puppeteers who would be comfortable going on and performing or even rehearsing without warming up. Um, Most performers will warm up, be it an opera singer or an actor or a dancer or whatever, and much like a sports person. Um, And with puppetry, we tend to have a particular focus on our hands, our our lower and upper arms, our upper back. Obviously, we'll warm up our voice and the rest of our bodies, but we particularly focus on this. Because if if you're nervous and your hands shake then the puppet is really shaking. Um, So you have no control. It's it's not able to communicate as you you need. Um, But also, it helps prevent against injury. So certainly when you're rehearsing, um, you might be standing in a position with real tension in the body for a long period of time that's not comfortable, a kind of tortured, stressed position even, much like with um, an operation taking place for six hours or something. Um, and in performance, you want to be, in a, in a performance situation, you want to be as ready with your muscles as possible. So warm-up is very important to us. We also use it to connect as a team and to, to become focused, which I think the scrubbing up does a bit of. You, you get into the zone, as it were. But, but I there's think, nothing I th- stretching and, and I mean, I think that the, the purpose
0: of scrubbing up for most surgeons is to get the bugs off, as you, as you say. Mm. And I think often it's, it's easy to, just to see that as the primary focus and not see that there might be other... Um, other benefits from, from, from that sort of that, that intermediate stage between being outside the operating theatre and being doing, doing an operation where you go through that, however many minutes it takes to, to, to clean your hands and put on a different it's set a of clothes. It's a bit of an airlock, isn't it? It is a bit of an you airlock. You know, from one environment it, to exactly. another and,
1: and that preparation, but,
0: but. That's a sort of transitional stage, absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. But when, what I noticed re- with watching you was that you have a very, very specific. Uh, set of exercises for putting your fingers through their paces. Do you Mm -hmm. want to just in the last couple of minutes, just briefly give a tiny example Uh, of that? Okay. I'll
1: (laughs) I'll turn on very warm. Um, Yeah, so I I mean, puppeteers often have their own favourite exercises and I'm always looking for new ones, but um, I try to ensure that that there's flexibility of this kind. I try to ensure that the the joints have got some movement. I try and ensure that there's tension and then no tension in lots of different ways, so that you're in control of getting rid of tension, releasing it. I try and do exercises where your hands are doing different things so that they're working independently of each other. So you're sending one message to one and one to another and switching between. Um, And I generally try and do something that that is going to make you think a little bit. A friend recently introduced me to some exercises from flamenco dance, which I adore, which is this sort of thing, which is really nice stretch. Um, And then, obviously, we work here because... Uh, you're quite often taking the weight of the puppet and getting quite strained here, so we, we work that whole body. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's...
0: And, and as I said, to me, this was a bit of a revelation because I'd always thought... I'd gone into the operating theatre thinking about what I was going to do with that patient, but I had not thought so much about my own body and how I was going to use it and how I was going to prepare it or how I was going to um, sort of be aware of it. Mm. and And that was kind of just what I used to do the work, if you see what mm. I mean. And so when I found that you and your puppeteers saw that as part of the work and wouldn't dream of doing, uh, a, as you say, even a rehearsal, let alone a performance, without spending, I don't know, five or ten minutes, even longer, perhaps. Yeah,
1: I mean, at the very minimal, ideally, five minutes or two minutes if you really haven't got time, but, I mean, we would love to spend... I mean, if I'm doing a, a, a rehearsal, I try and give half an hour for some stretches across the whole lot and a focus on that for hands. But, yeah, it can be two minutes,
0: you know. So, Rachel, in in the last couple of minutes, I I thought it would be interesting to to think more widely. We've talked a lot about specific aspects, Mm. specific kinds of puppetry, specific kinds of surgery, specific techniques we might be able to exchange. Mm. Um, But I think an interesting thing to me was this whole idea of looking outside the world that you're familiar with and then looking back in at it having gained a different perspective from somebody in a completely different, equally expert but differently expert way of looking at things. And yeah. certainly to me, it brought, has brought all sorts of things into view uh, about the world of surgery. And I just wondered, if have things happened for you the other way round?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's forced me to articulate some things that I take for granted. It's forced me to, to think about why I do things and the process I go through to get there and the... the the significance of certain things. Um, and, and it made me, therefore, um, clarify my process, clarify why I'm doing things in a way that I think has strengthened what I do. Um, it's, I think whenever you are... Well, you spend your whole working life working to achieve an excellence, and, and that's all as it should be. But, of course, you're surrounded by people who are doing the same field. And there are certain things you take for granted because they're already in place. And I think unless you think differently from by, from outside, you get stuck in just accepting that that's the best way to be, and, of course, it isn't necessarily. One thing that's occurred to me that that has made me think a lot more about how my work happens is about feedback. So in, in performance, we have a continual continual process of feedback during rehearsals, during the performance, from in all directions, and, and including that being the critics at the end of the performance or whatever who are going to write a review. And, and it's really made me think about how to deliver feedback, how to do that well, how to communicate an idea, because I think that's something that we do quite differently from surgical teams. Yes, so absolutely. It made me evaluate how I do it.
0: I, I think it is, and I think, to me, that's just another example of, of a very rich area of collaboration, of looking at one another's... Very different expert practices and see what we can learn from one another. And we could go on talking for a long, long time, but we can't because we're almost out of time. And I think this is, would be a good time to, um, to open things up and, and invite members of the audience to ask any, any questions. So, in the meantime, thank you, Rachel, thank you. and your puppeteers, very much indeed. Thank
1: you.